You are listening to The Upside of Down with Dan Ariely. Bend your knees and then yeah. bring your knees together. Now, take your tailbone yeah. and bring that up towards the sky with your knees going down. Now, take your sternum, yeah. right, and point that up to the ceiling. Uh-huh. As you start to walk now, yeah. imagine that with every step, you're fighting, actively fighting gravity. So yeah. with every step, you have to fight falling down. Imagine you're trying yeah. to stop yourself from falling down a flight of stairs. Yeah. The momentum, you can't stop. Like, you're trying to break yourself, but you can't. Running downhill oh, all see, the time. I yeah. see, and, and I see, so that, that helps. So you're running. Right, so make sure that sternum's going up. Yeah, right. <laughs> I think that going downhill was very helpful as yeah. a metaphor. So so I'm going to stop with your permission. I, yeah, of course. I don't like it so much. I don't like it as much right. as the regular one. <laughs> so what did you notice? First of all, it just, it's just consuming all my attention. Uh-huh. It's very hard. And then I didn't, and so, so there's the awkwardness and positioning of the body. Mm-hmm. But I think the stopping from, from falling, it's a very unpleasant, it's, it's just an unpleasant feeling. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I can see why you call it stress. Uh-huh. That, yeah. uh, that. The other thing was that this guy uh, passing us um, looked at me very strangely. Sure, sure. Yeah. Some people like to wear Never see the sky cause they're in a big cloud The only way up is to push it down Hi, my name is Dan Ariely, and in this show, I talk each time with somebody who's sort of like me in two ways. They've also been through a difficult time in their lives, and yet they're also trying to make specific and interesting meaning and contribution with their lives. I was burned many years ago, in about 70% of my body, and I spent about three years in hospital. And now I'm trying to run all kinds of experiments about all kinds of aspects of human behavior, trying to figure out what gets us to behave worse and what gets us to behave better. In this show, we will get to have conversations about what we do with all of this. What do we do with our own challenges and injuries? And how do we find meaning? It's about how we make these challenges into better times. Cerebral palsy is a neurological disorder that results in abnormal uh, muscle control. My uh, gait is, uh, is different uh, than most. So I'm falling, right, with almost every step. So to counter that, my upper body compensates by going up and back. I mean, I would describe it as, uh, you know, a human velociraptor. I'm always moving through an incredible amount of tension. I move through the world, pushing through tension all the time. Right now, it's interesting, it's like just talking, my feet are gripping the floor to an incredible degree. Outside of feeling the tension in your feet, are you aware that you're tense? Or is it, are you just experiencing through your reaction of your body? For the most part, you're just sort of living and sitting in sort of tension in the body all the time. 
Uh, I mean, I was born with this, so I have gained a, sort of a, a mastery and a control, right? Through which is the chaos of me, you know, walking. I've sort of developed another sense. I'm super hyper aware and hyper vigilant of all my surroundings, and that includes people looking at me or clocking my gait or how I move. I was much more concerned about that when I was younger. It occupied so much of my sort of emotional life. And it took me a long time to realize that 99.9% .9 of the people that I come across on a daily basis outside in social situations probably don't care or don't have time. This is actually, it's a very important psychological phenomenon that people don't always comprehend. So there's something called the spotlight effect. And the spotlight effect is the idea that we pay a lot of attention to ourselves. You're acutely aware of every step you make and what we wear and what's our hair do and so on. And we, because we pay so much attention to ourselves, we think that other people do so as well. But other people are busy with themselves. So in one study, they took undergraduate Cornell and they sent them into these fraternity parties and they dressed them up with a Barry Manilow t-shirt. And Barry Manilow is kind of a schmaltz uh, singer that's yeah. not, not the pride of sure. any undergrad. <laughs> Cornell undergrads will be proud of. And then when they came out, they said, how many people noticed you? And the kids said, you know, everybody noticed me and my social life is kind of over. There's no recovery from walking around with the Barry Manilow t-shirt. And then they went and they asked people in the party, how many of you observed this Johnny, whoever it is, with whatever he was wearing, do, do, have you noticed what he was wearing? Almost nobody noticed. Right. We all do it, mm -hmm. right? We all pay attention to what we do and we think other people do as well. I think that's the reason the fashion industry is alive because, mm -hmm. you know, otherwise would we spend so much money and time and attention? But I think with disability, you have this extra attention. More people yeah. are looking, more That's people right. are paying attention. So it is real. It is a fact of my life. I had a long time for a number of years being like, well, I do that too, yeah. you know, or I have that issue too. And it's like, no, you don't, like, not like me, you know, because yeah. it's, it's that other layer. And like getting people to understand that was really hard. Like there's this huge, I think, empathetic barrier to somebody who doesn't, um, have a disability or some sort of very, like, visible physical issue. It can be really hard. The experience of going out for somebody who looks different it's, it's, it's a real barrier that people have to, to overcome. I'm betting then that way too many people stay in their house way too many hours of the day. Sure, that's probably true. Sometimes yeah. I do that, you know? So I think that you, you don't see disability partially because the disabled are in their apartments. That's true. When I go to places that have big crowds of people I don't know. Mm -hmm. I make different calculus between going out to eat, 
and eating in my hotel room. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Given the cost and benefit, given the unpleasantness of being washed and feeling different and being reminded that you're not the same. Yeah. yeah I think it's a very unpleasant reminder. Yeah, of course. But um, that's, but got stuff to do. Yeah. That's a choice then. Now, you know, you can yeah. choose to be an active participant. And there are, don't get me wrong, there are days when that wins, you know? <laughs> like, yeah. So think about this woman that we just passed in a red dress. She, she started talking to the person sitting across from her. As we were passing, she stopped. Mm -hmm. She looked. She waited until we passed. And then it looked like she was resuming her a conversation. conversation. Yeah. yeah, that happens all the time. How would you like people to react? Uh, ideally? To me, it goes back to the acknowledgement. I never used to acknowledge someone looking at me. So this guy, for example, just kind of actively look the other way to avoid... Yeah, that guy's an asshole. <laughs> no, I don't know. You know him personally? Yeah. <laughs> now when I do, I try to say, hey, that lets them know that I see them looking at me, I see them. And that and also you're human, you're capable yeah. of human sound. And it's a very simple, sort of basic human interaction that says, I'm here and I see you. I mean, ideally I'd be like, hi, would you like to go out to dinner with me or something? You know, like, that would be, that would be nice. That would be tiring. Yeah. And I think, I think, hey, hey, might be. I've eaten six times today. I, yeah. How does somebody with an observable physical disability choose his acting school? Are you just looking for trouble? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a certain kind of insanity, I think. I grew up, I'm the third of four siblings, and we played a lot of sports. My mother was a big athlete. Sports and athletics were a very big thing in our family. My parents both like demanded participation. So I swam and I wrestled and I played soccer, and it was incredibly frustrating losing. I couldn't run as fast, I couldn't jump as high. Around age 12, I wasn't able to keep up anymore. That divide became very clear. In seventh grade, like I signed up for a speech and drama class, and one of the first things we had to do was pick a dramatic speech from literature or a play, and I chose the Friends Romans Countryman speech from Julius Caesar. And something happened. I felt this really palpable shift. Somehow people were, were looking at me for a different reason, they were listening, and I had control of my audience for the first time. And I think that was really seductive. Like, that was, that was power. When you act in high school, it's a hobby. Mm -hmm. But when you go to college, that's already becoming a vocation. Yeah, it's a choice. It's very are, choice. You, are you at that point concerned with being a disabled actor? No. Or, or are you not thinking no, long again, term? No, my identity as a disabled person really didn't develop until late high school, early college. Mm -hmm. um, so it wasn't, it, I didn't, it wasn't something that I claimed. But when you went to BU and, and you started acting school, mm -hmm. what kind of career did you think you would have? I mean, I felt like I'm going to be a classically trained actor and work hard and I should be able to play any role that I am, my type is right for. 
So here you are and people stare at you for all kinds of reasons. Mm -hmm. And then you're on stage and people are staring at you for all kinds of reasons, plus the dramatic role. And do you think that at that moment you could take the people's gaze and interpret it as if it's not for the other reasons, but just for the dramatic goal? That's been really interesting because people with cerebral palsy, like in the interest of self-preservation and self-survival, right, you're trying to convince people that it doesn't exist all the time. That takes an incredible amount of energy. Every character I ever play is going to have cerebral palsy, is going to have my particular gait. There's nothing I can do about that. To be a good actor, you have to bring your whole humanity and whole yeah. self. Like my disability is part of my humanity. Like I access all my emotions through this body with this particular nervous system. To not acknowledge that, trying to put a lid on that, is not bringing my full self and, and attention to the character and the role. There would be moments where like my leg would start shaking, you know, rapidly on stage, and I'd pretend like it wasn't happening. Everybody, I can see it. Everybody yeah. can see it. So if I had just acknowledged it as myself and, and the character, would have been totally fine. I'm trying to do that more in my life. Like if I can do that more in my life, I can obviously do that more in my art. You start acting in school with some self-delusion in your... Uh -huh. uh, I think yeah, all actors have all some self-delusion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, maybe, maybe in addition to the, the standard self-delusion, you uh -huh. have some, some specific ones about disability and then... Lots of things happen in school. You graduate, you move to New York, right. and you start yeah, looking, I start looking, trying to pursue uh, this as a viable career. career. And it's been a while, yeah. but you have a, a more serious problem because most actors become waiters, which, which right. is, a little, is a little harder for yeah. you. Carrying trays of food or liquids across crowded rooms, uh, it was never an option for me. The last um, year or so have been particularly interesting. Yeah, I've been really, really fortunate to be involved with some really um, great projects. Uh, I just did a play in Massachusetts at the Williamstown Theatre Festival, which is going to be off-Broadway in the spring. I'm excited about that. But it's a disabled character. It's a character with severe cerebral palsy. And, so. and how do you feel about playing a character with... I, I think it's awesome. No actor can play every role, period. But I think until disabled actors have an opportunity to play themselves as disabled people. The needle is never going to move as far as progress. More opportunities for disabled actors, more visibility, more stories. This particular play that I was just in and I'm going to be in the spring, like, it's awesome to play a role that is closer to my experience. Like, I understand that character. Like, I understand what the tension in his body feels like. I, I have been around people like him. My, mm -hmm. I'm modeling him after people in my life. Like, and I can articulate my experience through the character to the director or my other castmates or, you know, so that's really wonderful. So you're saying it's so internal, it's such a big part of your life that it's hard for you to come to any role without that part of you. It's, an imp it's impossible. When it, I feel like before I get to just playing any role, I have to show people, the greater public and decision makers in the industry, that yes, I am a disabled individual. So like see that first and then say, oh, you know what? You know what would be really interesting in this role? Greg Mosgala. I think that this idea that you, this is about acceptance, yeah. which I guess is something that you got over the 16 years of acting. You, you Again, I think it's just out of the interest of self-preservation too, because again, it's exhausting to be constantly denying something that is such a reality. I'm really interested in the, again, being born 
with a disability and acquiring one. I, th I think there's a very distinct difference. That's not really something that has been really talked about and disseminated in a, in a, in a large way, for me anyway. And I, it's just, it's fascinating to me. Can you tell me, is there any sort of major way that your life trajectory changed as a result? I haven't thought about this uh, before. First of all, I, I do think there's a big difference. And um, so there's something called counterfactual thinking. You just think about another alternative reality. And I think that if somebody like me acquired disability later, then there's lots of counterfactual thinking. So I, you could say, what if happened? You didn't have this uh, trauma during before birth. I, for me, the question of what could have happened, I think could be much more salient. But the other thing is that there's lots of things that I do and I remember how they felt before, even though I've been injured for many, many years. There's some things that I just do now and it just feels wrong. So my body has a very different memory from something, mm -hmm. like movement. You know, I'm, I'm moving also in a, in a way, not, not as constrained as you, but I have all kinds of constraints of movement. But my body kind of remembers fluid movement. And I just can't execute it. And, but but that, that memory of what fluid movement is about is still with me. Mm. So when, I, when I'm unable to produce a fluid movement, the contrast is very jarring. Somehow that memory of how things should be, like my brain still executes the right command for the body to move in a certain way, just it doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, that's that's just, it's the same thing with me, right? I do. I feel like my body understands flow and gra your grace and like moving with ease, right? But again, this the system on top of it is is uh, is changing that. So you feel that the command you execute in your brain are fluid. It's just that it doesn't get executed this way. Right, yeah, and I see, like, I see it all around me. Like, I, sh I know I should be able to walk in that way, right? I learned to walk while my brain was still damaged, right? So that's why I think I developed this different, different gait and way of moving. So you have um, a theater company? Yeah. The name of the company is The Apothete. It translates roughly to the place of exposure. There was a disabled playwright who passed away 10 years ago named John Beluso. And he wrote a play that I was in. And he meant, that character mentions this place, the Apathite. And the Apathite was a real place in ancient Greece, in Sparta. It was a chasm, a hole in the ground where they would leave disabled and deformed infants to the elements. I want to reappropriate that phrase, the place of exposure and shed light on issues and history of the disabled experience. And I put the disabled experience in quotes because I don't know what that is necessarily. Like I'm interested in exploring that and figuring out what that is. Every other sort of marginalized group, they all used theater as a vehicle to tell stories of their own history and experience. So you have playwrights like August Wilson, David Henry Wang, Tina how you know, that bring these stories to light, it starts in theater, right? And then mainstream media sort of catches on. 
we've been producing steadily, you know, on small scales, but the work is getting out there. And it's interesting that the topics you want to explore are social rather than internal. For example, I, I would love to explore how to live peacefully with daily pain. Uh-huh. I would like to think about how to feel a sense of belonging. But the topics that you, that you bring are much more society than, like if you think about pain, yeah. it's a very much an internal struggle uh-huh. and, and how to overcome that. Yeah, I mean, I think all those things can be encompassed in, the, in, a, sto- in a play, in a narrative, in a dramatic narrative. Mm-hmm. You know, what those two things you just mentioned are, I think, universal themes, right? Yeah. <laughs> so I think maybe the narratives that I'm going to tell feature disabled characters, but they're looking for the same things as anybody else. So yes, I, I am interested. I am interested in the bigger picture yeah, and the course, small, yeah. you know. So micro, macro. You know? But I think theater, that's why theater works. It can really... Theater can be very, very effective, you know, to get those messages and issues across and be entertaining. If you wrote all the pieces of your personality identity and you ranked order them in a list of kind of the biggest determinant of who you are, where would the cerebral palsy be? I think right now, where I am right now, it's pretty, it's pretty high on the list. Because again, I'm trying to actively practice acknowledgement and engagement with it and with other people, you know, personally and professionally. <laughs> this, I think, goes back to that spotlight question, right? Like that idea of it might be higher on a list for me, but not, not, not for high for my mother or my girlfriend. You know? so, so is it fair to say that you're accepting it as part of your identity, but not as a force that dictates how you live? Yes. That's a constant negotiation, though. It's not like I've... I feel like it's going to be constantly evolving. Like, mm-hmm. right now, within the past couple of years, I've found a new way to sort of operate and be in relationship to my body and my disability. Five years from now, like, it might be incredibly difficult again. I can see the beauty in, in acceptance, mm-hmm. but it also saddens me. A, a little bit. The, um, that the notion of acceptance is kind of accepting a limitation. And when I was in the rehabilitation center, there was a period where the, the scars shrink. Uh-huh. There was the initial period where you have no skin, and then there's transplant. I had no skin, then there was transplants, and then the scars were kind of healed in a way that all the skin was... Like new skin was growing, but that new skin is very strange. It's very thin, it's, it's highly scarred. And then that new skin starts contracting. And I could sit on a chair with my elbows bent. And then if I even did it for an hour and a half, I couldn't straighten my elbows. And I would have to like slowly, slowly, slowly work to stretch the skin back. And if I sat for an hour and a half, I would have to maybe stretch it for maybe three hours mm-hmm. to get back. You know how the kids do Indian burns when you kind yeah, of, yeah. this is kind of the feeling. And sometimes I couldn't do it. And if I couldn't stretch it all the way, they would put me again in the operating room and they would cut the skin and put some more skin to, fill, to fill the gaps and, and do it. And I also learned how to sleep with my arms stretched. 
and my neck a little bit outside of the bed. So my neck was fully stretched because if my neck was like regular on the pillow, the skin on my neck would, mm-hmm. would shrink. And after, you know, seven hours of sleep, I couldn't, couldn't yeah. get it back. So I was like a Jesus position <laughs> plus my neck and kind of a little bit outside of, outside of the mattress. Do you still have to do those things? or I, it's, rest- it's slower. It's uh-huh. slower. I still have to stretch uh, and I still don't have full, like I lost some range. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just had a surgery, since you saw me, I had two surgeries to try and expand my my range of motion. So it's, it's, a, it's an ongoing problem, but it's a much slower than it used to be. Like an hour and a half now is not the issue. Right. But, um, but I had this feeling, especially at that time. So, so you know, the moment the, the, the wounds were open, it was one thing. Then the wounds were closed. I was so, you know, relieved. I felt like, you know, we, we achieved something. And, and then uh, the contraction started and I felt my body was really betraying me. Mm-hmm. Because it, it was just fighting against me. And I had this very strong feeling of my body is not me. And not want to give in mm-hmm. to, my, to my body. That you know, my body is, is doing all these terrible things, but in some sense it's not the real, <laughs> the real me. That the real me is inside. Yeah. Um, I'm still the same. The, the thought was that I kind of don't want to give in to my body. And it gave me the extra kind of strength to fight back. Sure. Um, and, and from that perspective, I kind of don't like the acceptance. I understand acceptance, but I also kind of d- don't want the giving up of saying that there's no way for you not to bring disability to any role. hard being in this body like it's incredibly difficult on a daily basis it's anxiety ridden it makes me not want to be around people it makes me not want to be around myself I don't know if I'm ever going to truly accept it right yeah. maybe a better word is acknowledgement mm-hmm. like if I can acknowledge this to myself if I can acknowledge it to someone else like a loved one or a co-worker or whoever like it's the act of acknowledgement I think that's different from acceptance that's been harder. The act of acknowledgement is something that I've found incredibly difficult. And that's something that I have to practice. Slow down hard. You keep a rhythm like a wartime drum. No kingdom is gonna come on. I don't think I'm ever gonna truly accept having a disability. There's always gonna be a part of me that's like, if not for this thing. I would be able to do this and this and this and this and this. But what can I do? Like, I can't, it's not gonna go away. So I either have to find a way to deal with it that helps me get through my day and helps me live fulfilling relationships in my life, or I'm gonna be lost.
The Upside of Down is hosted and executive produced by Dan Ariely. The episodes are produced and edited by DDC International and New Fruit Media, especially Luis Dectiar and Colby Goddard. Sound mixing by Ross Nelson. Additional sound mixing, editing, and producing by Daniel Rinaldi. The theme song is A-OK by Cajuns. Additional music provided by Music Bed and Marie Claire Sedol. I'm Robin Eldridge, and I created, produced, and directed the series. If you like what you heard, please pass it on. 